Ten years ago, we walked through what is likely the most globally influential single teaching of Jesus in all of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. World changers like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. uh, drew their vision and their resolve from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Ethicists and mystics alike have drawn upon the Sermon on the Mount for their vision of how to rightly relate to other people and to God. But at the core, I believe that the Sermon on the Mount has been so influential over, over such a long period of time, over so many different kinds of people, because it gives a vision for what it means for human beings to flourish in life. Every culture in every time has sought to ask the question, what does it mean to get the most out of life? What does it mean for a human being to flourish? The Hebrews sought shalom. Aristotle taught us to seek for happiness. In the Far East, nirvana. In the modernist mindset, it was the search for purpose and significance And in today's contemporary Western parlance, it might be something like, what does it mean to be winning at life? Or what does success look like for me? What brings joy and happiness and fulfillment? These are the questions that deep thinkers are trying to wrestle with over time. And these are the questions that politicians are trying to answer in their policies and in their campaign platforms. And these are the questions that our capitalist economy is trying to answer through the products that they're trying to sell you and me. In our current context, the rhetoric might be something like, you will be flourishing if you do what makes you happy. Or you will be flourishing if you look fit and have a awesome, busy social life. Or, you will be a person who is flourishing if you wear certain trendy clothes, or drive a certain car, or have the right mountain bike. It's important to flourishing. You will be flourishing if you are on the important side of, or the popular side of contentious social and political issues. You will be flourishing if you have an opinion that doesn't get you canceled. Time. Culture location doesn't seem to matter. Human beings over all time seem to have a deep sense that there is such a thing as human flourishing, that to flourish is to be desired among us, and that there must be a way to find flourishing, because in every generation, people are seeking after this thing. And the question is, and always has been, what is the best path to flourishing? Like, what actually works. Well, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I would propose to you, is the answer to that question. But before I dive into the Sermon on the Mount, claiming that the Sermon on the Mount is the best guidance we have toward human flourishing, I want to back up that claim a little bit. After all, if it's such a great teaching, why isn't the Sermon on the Mount just universally accepted as the way to go? Why do humans seek so many other avenues to achieve flourishing, even though none of them yet to date have seemed to work? So my big three questions, if you're looking to take notes or something, my big three questions for the remainder of the sermon are these. Why should we trust the Sermon on the Mount? 
as a path to flourishing. Why should we even trust the Sermon on the Mount as a path to flourishing? Number two, if the Sermon on the Mount leads to flourishing, why do we resist it wholesale? Like so, every generation seems to resist it and to seek for other alternatives. Okay. And third, if the Sermon on the Mount leads to flourishing, then how can we start to live it out? What is the foundation for flourishing? All right, so why should we even trust the Sermon on the Mount? In short, we should trust the Sermon on the Mount because of the preacher on the Mount. I'm a preacher. I'm a preacher. I, if I have anything worth saying to you at any time, any words that have power to change lives for flourishing, it is only because I preach the preacher's words. It's only because I preach the preacher's words. In other words, I preach God's word, which is the authority. My own opinions and my own personal piety, they might be sometimes good, but they're not going to change your life. Jesus is going to change your life. And when it comes to human flourishing, I, I, I may have some ideas about what is good and healthy and right, but I'm a 46-year-old American guy with very limited perspective and experience when you consider all of human history, every culture and time and perspective. So don't listen to me. Listen to the word of God that I proclaim. And if anyone knows what it takes for human beings to flourish, it's going to be the one who invented human beings, the one who invented us on the atomic level, the one who invented, invented DNA, uh, the one who created this planet and put us on it on purpose, with a purpose to interact with him and each other and the creation. And this, this one who created us and put us here is, is known as Yahweh, the creator, the father, the redeemer, the Lord, our help and strength, the good shepherd, the one who hears us, the one who sees us, the one who loves us, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us and died for us and rose and reigns. If anyone knows how human beings are going to flourish, it's him, it's that one, it's God. Now, why should we trust Jesus, the preacher on the mount? Because in the four chapters that lead up to chapter five, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we learn some important things about Jesus. And here I'm quoting New Testament scholar Dale Bruner, who just lays out, he says, Jesus is presented as Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, as God saves, as God with us, as ruler shepherd, as the Nazarene, as the baptizer with Holy Spirit and fire, as the Father's priceless and deeply pleasing Son, as the light of the nations. And Bruner continues, he says, Matthew taught us in his four-chapter preface that Christology is the key to the mystery of Christian ethics. Christology is what we know, what we believe about Jesus. So what we believe about Jesus, what we know about Jesus, is the key to understanding Christian ethics. Without the Son of God, he continues, the Sermon on the Mount is not only impossible, it's impertinent, um, it's rude, it is an affront to our sensibilities, it's a slap in the face end quote. And all that other stuff is mine that I put in there. Yep. Dale Brunner, don't hold any of that against him. 
We can trust the teaching from the mount because we can trust that the preacher on the mount, Jesus, knows what the heck he's talking about because he made us. So the second question is, if the Sermon on the Mount leads to flourishing, then why do we as a a species, really, as human beings, why do we so often resist and push back against the Sermon on the Mount? And I don't want to be overly simplistic, but in this COVID hybrid sermon thing, um, my normal 30-ish minutes are down to 22, so I'm just going to get right to the point. I believe the two main reasons that we as human beings don't follow the Sermon on the Mount as a whole are two, sin and the church. Sin and the church. Let's talk about sin. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount lately or ever heard of it? It is insanely high bar of standards, right? Uh, It says things like, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. That makes sense. Uh, And then Jesus says, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister shall be guilty before the court. He goes on to say that everyone who says to another human being, you good for nothing, gosh, how many times have we said that in traffic? Um, You good for nothing, you'll be guilty enough to go into the fiery Gehenna. That is the place of destruction. I mean, that's a high bar. Um, Or how about the one where it says, turn the other cheek to your enemy, right? Like, it's hard enough to turn the other cheek to your neighbor or somebody who loves you, let alone your enemy. How about, uh, how about love your enemy? Love your neighbor. And, and Jesus talks about things like sexual ethics and money and fear and issues that pull hardest at our, at our emotions and our identity. We got it here. Jonathan, if I were to say to you, you have unlimited access to a salad bar, no dressing, just the salad bar, or unlimited access to Pure Bliss or Mallory, take your pick, I'm more of an ice cream man, but I can appreciate a fine cake. I mean, which one are you gonna pick at your age? You going salad bar? No, you're going dessert buffet, my friend. I've been 15 before. We know that the salad bar is better for our flourishing, but the flesh is weak, isn't it not? Um, Have you had the chocolate bourbon ice cream at Mallard? All things in moderation, my friends. It it is so good. Um, Guys, our our culture does not support us in following the Sermon on the Mount. Humans are ever seeking the path of, of least resistance. I do it. You do it, we typically take the easy way out. Can you imagine a film series like The Avengers where they all just, you know what, let's just turn the other cheek. There would be no movie. If, if you are a certain age um, and grew up maybe in the 80s or late 70s, does anyone remember the Ungame? My parents brought this game home. Uh, it was like, you can't win. It's like supposed to be non-competitive, worst idea ever, right? And, and that's me thinking that is the reason that it's hard for me to follow the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> My culture has ingrained in me to be competitive, to want to win, um, to eat the chocolate bourbon ice cream. We want our cake and ice cream lifestyles and values, not salad bar virtues and ethics. So sin is one of the main reasons why we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we say, uh, is there any other way to flourish because this is really hard? Which leads me to my second reason that I don't think we as a wholesale species 
follow Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as the best way to live? I think it's because how the church has taught the Sermon on the Mount. Let me say this loud and clear for you at home and for you here so you don't think I'm throwing anyone in particular under the bus. You can find good teaching from the church on the Sermon on the Mount in every generation over time. But in general, over history, the church has taught Jesus' teachings as something that you have to do in order to become part of the kingdom of God. That somehow you have to first become poor in spirit or humble or pure in heart or seeking after righteousness with all that you are. That somehow you have to learn to turn the other cheek to your enemy before you can become part of God's kingdom and what he's doing in Christ. If that were the case, we might as well quit right now. And a lot of people have already quit because it's been taught to them that that is indeed the case. You've got to do it, and then Jesus will receive you. Let me quote Dale Bruner again in those last two sentences. Matthew taught us in his four-chapter preface that Christology, what we think and believe about Jesus, is the key to the mystery of Christian ethics. Without the Son of God, the Sermon on the Mount is not only impossible, it's impertinent. It is a slap in the face. It is something that is to rub your face in something you can't do. But here's what a lot of people miss when we get into the details of the Sermon on the Mount and we focus on the things, on the ethical statements. We miss that the first four chapters of Matthew not only tell us the identity of Jesus and why he has the authority to preach the Sermon on the Mount, they also miss that at every turn, Matthew is presenting Jesus, the enfleshed man Jesus, Matthew is presenting him as the embodiment of good news. His genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 includes Jews and Gentiles and women and men and sinners and saints, and that tells me that Jesus, whatever he's about, he's good news for everybody. His defeat of the Satan in the desert accomplished for humanity what Moses and the Israelites and Adam could never do on their own. His proclamation of the kingdom of God in his person in Matthew chapter 4 means that he and his actions and his teachings are, if they're anything, they're good news for all people. So when we read that Jesus saw the crowds, right? At the end of chapter 4, there's all of these sick people and paralytics and epileptics and people that are just, if they had been seen by a religious leader, they would have been said, you must not be close to God because you are afflicted. And Jesus saw those very crowds. He went up on a mountain, a lot like Moses. He sat down, he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. Those people that the religious leaders wouldn't spend time teaching. He began to teach them, and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So imagine that audience. Blessed are the poor. Who, who's the poor in spirit that he's talking to? It's them. It's them. He's not saying you have to become something. You're already there. You're blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. 
The Sermon on the Mount reads as an impossible list of insane ethics if they're left for you and me to accomplish in our own strength. And that would be completely inaccurate interpretation. That would be completely accurate. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you said, if I've got to do this in my own strength, can't do it. Not for very long. But the reason that it is good news is because Jesus intends for our flourishing and because he is the source, the power, the transformational agent who changes our hearts so that we can live it out. So when he says blessed or flourishing is a better word for blessed, um, blessed or flourishing are the poor in spirit, he's not like looking at the crowd trying to find out which one of them are poor in spirit so he can invite them into the kingdom of heaven and not the other people. He's not scanning the crowds looking for those who mourn or for the humble or for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or or for those who are merciful or for those who are pure in heart. He's not like, where are those guys? Because I'm going to pick them out of this crowd and then leave everybody else. It's not what he's about. Jesus is talking to a group of people who are poor in spirit, and he is saying, you are blessed. You are flourishing not because you're poor in spirit, but because yours is the kingdom of heaven, and I'm here to declare that to you. So rejoice. Rejoice in your state. It's not a barrier to the kingdom of heaven. And this is the foundation for flourishing, whatever from this point on, and we're going to take some weeks, and we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount, and I am frequently going to bring us back here, because this is the foundation. I will, my job is to preach the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm always going to remind you that the foundation is this statement, blessed, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and that is important, because if you are honest with yourself, you are poor in spirit, and you are I've built a foundation for flourishing because Jesus is saying yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so it's an invitation for us just to check, to be honest with our utter dependence on Jesus for life, for redemption, for flourishing. In the weeks to come, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna see more about how when we entrust ourselves to Jesus, He's going to bring these kingdom qualities out in us, like humility and mercy and purity and so on and so on and so on. But the foundation, the place to begin and the place I'll be pointing us back to is the admission that we're poor in spirit. This isn't, it's not a woe is me, I'm just such a loser, I'm poor in spirit. This isn't a groveling mentality where we conjure up some false humility or some unhealthy low self-image. After all, newsflash, you're made in the image of the living God. You are a glorious being. Glorious. Somebody play some Macklemore. Okay, don't do that. <coughs> Sorry for embarrassing my children. But you are glorious, and being poor in spirit is a recognition simply that we are truly dependent on God for salvation. It's admission that I cannot earn my way into God's kingdom. I, there, I can't earn it. I must be at the mercy of a gracious and loving Jesus who invites people, all of us, to come and follow him. So I'm going to leave us with this. Ask yourself, ask yourself, Am I in touch with my dependence on Jesus? 
do I really know that no matter how many good things I've done or how many bad things, I'm in the same boat as every other person. I am in desperate need of Jesus. If you can begin to come to that conclusion, well, you're indeed blessed, for yours is the kingdom of heaven and all the rights and privileges that come with it. Lord, thank you for this foundation on which you build a life of flourishing, a teaching of flourishing. Thank you that you begin with grace, not just a sentence of grace, but four chapters of grace leading up to this point. As we journey together, Lord, help us to build on this foundation, to cling to you. Thank you that you call us, even us, blessed as we learn to trust you.